The Honorable, the Judges of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Oyez, oyez, oyez. All persons having any manner or form of business before the Honorable, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit are admonished to draw nigh and give their attention for the court is now sitting. God save the United States in this honorable court. Be seated, please. All right, the first case we're going to hear this morning is um, Billard versus uh, Charlotte Catholic High School. And uh, because of uh, conditions, we have Mr. Block arguing remotely. We, I guess you can see him on the screen, and uh, uh, he will argue second. So we'll begin with um, Mr. Goodrich, right? Yes, Your Honor. All right. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, Luke Goodrich, on behalf of the Diocese of Charlotte. The Supreme Court has repeatedly recognized what it calls the critical and unique role of teachers in religious schools. This is because religious schools like Charlotte Catholic exist not just to transmit academic knowledge, but to pass on the faith to the next generation. Counsel, can I ask you sort of a threshold question related to that? Um, why isn't this a ministerial exception case, given all of that? Um, you're asking us to make new law, but that's the doctrine we usually use to address, you know, that exact sort of set of concerns you just raised. Sure, Your Honor. We stipulated that we wouldn't raise the ministerial exception. But why not? Since... Just because you want us to issue a broader ruling? Uh, no, Your Honor. We stipulated to that in the trial court in order to narrow the scope of discovery. It was on the on the eve of Bishop Jugas's deposition, which, as you know, is deeply entangling. We wanted to limit the topics that were at issue there. The stipulation was also made before Bostock was decided, before Our Lady was decided in the US Supreme Court. So the law shifted right, a bit. But now that Our Lady has been decided, I guess I'm wondering um, why, you know, given the way the court has defined the exception and the reasons behind it, why we don't sort of have to start with that. A bunch of courts have held that, right? That this is not a waivable defense. You're correct. Several courts have held it's not waivable. Uh, we've, we're abiding by the stipulation that we made. We're not asserting the ministerial exception as a defense. Uh, there are several statutory defenses I, here that are... I don't quite understand in view of that question. I have the very same question, and uh, it's, it seems to me, after Our Lady, uh, the, the courts seem to suggest that it's not limited to people who just teach religion or are actual ministers ordained, uh, but that it has a broader scope. Now, it's, it, it's sort of ill-defined. But it seems to me uh, either uh, you could take the position that the ministerial exception is but an aspect of the uh, uh, of the autonomy doctrine uh, and that it's broader than just the ministerial, which I think is the general acceptance by people who are specialized in this field. But the other possibility would be to say uh, the relationship between a teacher and a student uh, in a Catholic school uh, is indeed ministerial uh, uh, in view of Our Lady. And uh, so uh, uh, it's a little puzzling why you insist on it. I assure you did that, but you did it before Our Lady. And uh, uh, and uh, the ministerial section had been defined fairly narrowly before that. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I'm not sure how we should treat what you're saying. <laughs> Well, Judge Easterbrook addressed this in his concurring opinion in the Starkey case in the Seventh Circuit and pointed out that it's normal to address statutory issues before you address the Constitution. I mean, Judge King 
Justice authored an opinion in the Palmer case a couple months ago where you had a religious college that dismissed a teacher. Could have been well, a ministerial exception but, case. Uh, I think it's understood that Title VII uh, is uh, uh, intended to implement uh, the constitutional underpinning that's uh, uh, that's in the uh, autonomy doctrine. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like you're giving away issue after issue, but uh, yeah, it's your argument, and uh, you go ahead and proceed. Well, Your Honor, I wasn't counsel below. I probably wouldn't have entered that stipulation, but we're abiding by the stipulation. I don't, I don't see a way that we can get around that. Well, and we're simply to me, your argument might be that we entered into that stipulation before Our Lady, and that it may be broader, and we don't want to foreclose that. That may be what you can say. I'm not uh, arguing your case for you, but I'm, uh, 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 your take on it is uh, interesting. We're abiding by the stipulation. And ask but we, but we, just to be clear, we would have to split with some other circuits if we, because we would have to say this is a waivable defense. And there are several circuits that have said it's not waivable. Like it, you're, it's not up to the defendant to tell us we can engage in an inquiry into the firing of someone who qualifies as a minister. That's something the Supreme Court has said we don't have the authority to do. I don't see how a party can waive that. Uh, we're, our position is you wouldn't have to reach the ministerial exception in this case because you could first address Title VII's religious exemption, the plain text of which protects the conduct here. You now, could also address... That would resolve this case. I'm sorry, Your Honor? Under our Palmer decision that you mentioned, that would resolve this case without reaching the constitutional question. Exactly. And that's how courts normally operate. You don't reach out. Uh, Judge Widener here somewhere, uh, <laughs> he always asks about the Eichwander case. Exactly. What about Eichwander? You don't get to the constitutional question oh. if you can resolve it on the statute. But, but again, there are several circuits. People do seem to treat the ministerial exception in Title VII differently, like in the companion case to Starkey, the Seventh Circuit, or maybe it was Starkey, the Seventh Circuit resolved it under the ministerial exception without reaching the Title VII question. Could have been the companion case. It, it, we would not be the first court to, to do that order of operations. And I think I understand that because the argument you're presenting under Title VII would require us to make brand new law, whereas under the ministerial exception, we would at least be within sort of well-established understandings. But go I, I, I'm the biggest fan of the ministerial exception. I firm litigated Hosanna Tabor and Our Lady, and I'd be happy to argue that if, if that's what you want me to argue. But it's, it's your argument, I think the questions are pointing out that you are probably, uh, uh, you're, you're probably leaving behind a, a very, uh, makeable arguments. Uh, uh, and uh, the question uh, in this type of situation where the uh, Title VII really is an implementation of sorts of the uh, autonomy uh, uh, understanding, uh, it, it seems to me that uh, a court could start with autonomy uh, or a court could start with Title VII. Uh, it, uh, the, the normal uh, provision, of course, is you defer on the constitutional issue, but here the constitutional issue informs the statute, so to speak. And uh, and uh, Judge Widener's picture, I don't think, is in this room. And so here's somewhere uh, behind me. <laughs> right up here. We knew him well. <laughs> I beg your pardon. <laughs> and Judge Widener is here. And it's <laughs> admonishing us. <laughs> 
Well, I'll proceed in any order you wish. I'd be happy to argue no, this to accept it. We're asking questions. It's your argument. You design it the way you want. Great. Well, I'd love to start with a plain text. The easy seat. Yeah, right. We can ask them. Yeah. I'd love to start with the plain text of Title VII's religious exemption, which says Title VII shall not apply to a religious organization with respect to the employment of individuals of a particular religion. And I think we all agree that employment of individuals of a particular religion would include limiting your hiring to employees who share your religious beliefs. Question is whether that also extends to observances and practices. And Title VII defines religion to include not just belief, but all aspects of religious observance and practice. So when a religious employer makes an employment decision based on the employee's religious belief, observance, or practice, as is conceded here, Title VII's religious exemption applies. And what this court said in Kennedy was, quote, the exemption includes, quote, permission to employ only persons whose beliefs and conduct are consistent with the employer's religious precepts. The district court's interpretation of the exemption that applies only to claims, certain types of claims of religious discrimination cannot be squared with the text, can't be squared with the fact that the exemption applies to this subchapter, meaning the entire subchapter of Title VII, can't be squared with the definition of religion to include observance and practice, can't even be squared with the alien exemption in the same sentence of the statute, which is not limited to claims of national origin discrimination. Can I ask you a question about um, the, the textual argument under 702. That's what we're talking about, right? Um, and I know because of Judge Easterbrook's concurrence, there's a lot of emphasis on this subchapter. Um, but Everybody agrees, right, that the scope of 702 is the same as the scope of the 703 exemption. And the 703 exemption doesn't use any of that language. So how much, do you know what I'm saying? How much weight can I put? If everyone agrees that these two exemptions mean the same thing, but only one of them uses that critical language about this subchapter shall not apply. How much weight can I put on that? How does that work? Yeah. Your Honor, 703 does use very similar language. It says the, the first words are notwithstanding any other provision of this subchapter, it shall not be an unlawful employment practice to do X, Y, Z. So notwithstanding the ban on facial discrimination, notwithstanding the, the prohibition the on... The text is not the same. It says it shall not be an unlawful employment practice to hire and employ employees of a particular religion. That seems slightly different to me. I mean, I just, you're asking us to do a really close textual analysis, but the two provisions that are identical have different texts. So I'm just trying to figure out how to square all of that up. Yeah, I would say, notwithstanding any other provision of this subchapter, it shall not be an unlawful employment practice, means that if you're doing employment of individuals of a particular religion, that is not an unlawful employment practice, regardless of any other provision of this subchapter. That, that's a close textual reading of that provision. Uh, and so both, and there's, you may wonder why there, why there are two exemptions, right, that have the same scope. Uh, when Congress originally enacted Title VII, the two exemptions had a different scope. The first exemption, 702, you had to, the employee, it was limited to employees who engaged in religious activities. Several members of Congress said, that's too narrow for religious schools. Religious schools need to be able to hire people of a particular religion for any position, whether or not they're engaged in religious activities. So that's why they added 703. It was broader. Then in 1972, Congress broadened the first one. So now they're the same scope. But that shows us that from the very beginning, Congress was particularly concerned about religious schools. 
to make sure religious schools could hire individuals of a particular religion, regardless of what position that, that employee held. Uh, you also have the, the same language in the Americans with Disabilities Act, individuals of a particular religion. Uh, the district court's reading, plaintiff's reading, that this applies only to claims of religious discrimination, it makes complete nonsense of the exemption in the Americans with Disabilities Act, because there is no claim of religious discrimination under the Americans with Disabilities Act. You can only bring a claim of disability discrimination, and yet there's an exemption that says uh, this doesn't apply to uh, giving preference in employment to individuals of a particular religion. So the only way to construe that is that that religious exemption can bar claims of disability discrimination, just like the Title VII exemption can bar claims of sex discrimination. This is also exactly how the Third Circuit interpreted the religious exemption in the Curry-Kramer case to bar a claim of sex discrimination. The Fifth Circuit uh, in the Mississippi College case, and then I mentioned Judge Easterbrook in his concurring opinion in the Starkey case in the Seventh Circuit. So if you were to not go this direction, not adopt the plain language of the religious exemption, you would be creating a circuit split. That's not how I read those cases. I thought those cases were more about the sort of pretext problem, but I just want to put that to one side. Let me just tell you my concern about your argument. Um, I mean, I think your case, the facts of your case would strike a lot of people as sympathetic, you know, a teacher at a Catholic school engaged in conduct that seems to go to something like a core of the school's religious mission. But your legal argument, right, is not at all limited to facts like that. Um, if we adopt this reading of Section 702, and tell me if I'm wrong, if there's some way to narrow it, but I think that would mean that the school could fire not only a teacher in a same-sex marriage, but also a custodian in a same-sex marriage or a different school could fire the custodian for being in an interracial marriage if the school had an objection to that, a sincere religious objection, or if there was a school that didn't think women should be in the workplace for religious reasons, could just fire all of its women employees. Is there any way, like, can we read 702 in any way that would narrow it to discrimination like this, or do we inevitably have to embrace all of it? Sure, there's a couple couple responses to that, Your Honor. So with the, with the question about the nature of the position, how far down the chain does it go? Supreme Court answered that in Amos. It applied it to a building engineer, which is basically a janitor. So it does apply all the way down the chain. As to the type of discrimination involved, you mentioned interracial marriage. That claim would lose, the religious organization would lose that claim open and shut, uh, not because of the text of Title VII's religious exemption, but because both Congress and the Supreme Court have treated race differently in three contexts. First, Section 1981, that prohibits employment discrimination, private employment discrimination based on race. There is no religious exemption in 1981. There's no 15 employer limit either. There's no cap on damages. So religious organization be fully liable under 1981. I mean, oh, at least as to your Title VII argument, you, you would still, I imagine your expressive association claim would still kick in then, right? Uh, it, that would lose as well under the Supreme Court's decision in the Bob Jones case. So that, that was the stripping of tax-exempt status uh, under 501c3. Bob Jones University said, hey, that, that violates our autonomy, that violates our religious liberty. Supreme Court said, no, you lose because of the compelling interest. Be, so you're answering sort of a practical question that there may be other statutory bars on this, but there is no way to construe Section 702 so that it would not allow this, right? 
on your reading, 702 would allow all forms of discrimination that had a religious motive. Just, yes, just okay. like the 15 employer limit. Uh, but my point is that the, the concerns that have been raised are, I'm sorry? That I should not worry about it because there may be other. They're fully addressed by, by other statutes. So you had, how far did, down the chain does it go? Does it apply to nasty things like race discrimination? And then there's a, another concern about what organizations are covered. You know, the, I, the, I didn't raise that concern, but if you would like to know, to address it, feel free. Uh, things like hospitals, it has to be a religious organization. The Ninth Circuit has expressly ruled that hospitals are not covered in the World Vision case. So that's no, but you, that is very much an active issue. I, I mean, I, I, I read there are a lot of arguments um, about what should be covered and what shouldn't be covered. So I don't think we can consider that sort of a stable area of the law. I'm sure you're more familiar with those cases than I am and the efforts to change federal regulations on that. Yeah, I took your question to be, are there things out there that can limit this? And the answer is yes. And that's that's one of them. All right. Uh, I think you have some, you're through the red light and uh, you have some uh, time on rebuttal uh, and we can take that up then. Thank you, Your Honor. All right, Mr. Block, you're on television. Everybody can see you. Uh, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Your Honor. Josh Block for the plaintiff, Lonnie Billard. Um, I'll begin with this question of constitutional avoidance because I do think this is a critical issue here. In Rayburn, uh, in the opinion authored by Judge Wilkinson, this court went to great lengths to say if it could avoid the constitutional question involved in a ministerial exception case, it would. It looked at the text of Section 702 and at the legislative history and asked itself, is there any way we can construe Section 702 to provide an exemption that would make it unnecessary for us to decide the constitutional question of the ministerial exception? And this court said no. If I may, that was, if, that was before the Supreme Court had even acknowledged a ministerial exception. That was asking us to break new constitutional ground. And the court quite properly said, before we wade into an open constitutional question, we're going to look at the statute. I do think the situation is a little bit different. Supreme Court has now twice acknowledged the ministerial exception. That's not new law anymore. The other stuff we're being asked to do today, that's new law. I, I completely agree with that, Your Honor. I'm just saying that the this, this question of Ashwander, does constitutional avoidance apply? That's already been resolved. There is no way to avoid the constitutional question under the ministerial exception by by interpreting section 702 to cover this. So if I I, I would strongly uh, prefer the court resolve this on uh, grounds that can be limited to the context of teachers at schools as opposed to interpret section 702 in such a broad sweeping fashion that as your honor said would apply to every single uh, employee in the secular workforce of a, of a religious organization. Um, it, it's not true that hospitals aren't covered. St. Kennedy versus St. Joseph's was a hospice center and in fact cited an Iowa case that involved a Catholic hospital. So as the amici from the National Women's Law Center pointed out, the, the, the implications of the Section 702 argument are, are really sweeping. And the plain text of Section 702 supports the plaintiff, not the defendants. Section 702 provides an exception with respect to employment of individuals of a particular religion. That phrase, individuals of a particular religion, didn't come out of nowhere. It was drawn from the underlying prohibition in Section 703 on uh, discrimination based on an individual's religion. 
Section 703 says it shall be an unlawful employment practice for an, an employer to fail or refuse to hire any individual, excuse me, fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise discriminate against any, any individual with respect to his employment because of such individuals, race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Section 702 doesn't use the phrase religious discrimination, but Section 703 doesn't use the phrase religious discrimination either. It has five separate pro prohibitions based on the individual's race, the individual's color, the individual's religion, etc. So when Section 702 comes along and, excuse me, and provides an exception with respect to employment of individuals of a particular religion, it's providing an exception with respect to the prohibition on discrimination because of an individual's religion. Defendants say that Section 702 provides an exception to all five of Section 703's prohibitions whenever an organization seeks to enforce its religious tenets. But when Congress wanted to create that exception, it knew how to do so explicitly. In 1972, the same year that the relevant language of Section 702 was last amended, Congress passed Title IX, which has an explicit exception saying the statute shall not apply to a religious organization if it's inconsistent with the organization's religious tenets. The ADA referenced by my, my colleague uh, has the same exception there, and the legislative history of the ADA goes out of its way to say, we, draw, we drew that religious tenets exception from Title IX, and there's no similar exception in, in Title VII. So Congress could have had a broad exception for religious tenets. It knew how to write that exception, but it chose not to. Uh, it had an exception based on employment of individuals of a particular religion and tracked that language with the underlying prohibition on discrimination because of an individual's religion. Um, I'm happy to answer more of Section 702, uh, which I think is a, a critical uh, uh, argument here. But if there are no further questions on that, I can proceed to the constitutional claims. I ask you to address your colleague was um, reassuring me that I shouldn't worry about the scope of the 702 exemption because there are other statutory protections that would kick in to protect employees of religious employers. Do you have thoughts about that? Well, I, I think that there's <laughs> Congress passed Section 702 uh, to to eliminate uh, discrimination in, in the workforce. And, uh, sec, and sec, Title VII has a variety of remedies that are very distinct from you know, private lawsuits under Section 1981. You don't have EEOC enforcement of Section 1981 claims. Uh, I, I don't think you can say because there's some other statutes that might somehow get at this conduct um, that that means that there's no practical consequence to interpreting Section 702 in a way that would you know, effectively gut it for uh, employees of all religious employers, not just hospitals. If you look at the amici that have lined up uh, in support of defendants, they're from broadcasters, they're from uh, charities, they're from accounting. Uh, you know, everyone wants to invoke the Section 702 exemption for more than just uh, religious schools. And so I, I just think the, the, the sweeping effect of that interpretation can't be overstated. But at the same time, our, our opinion, our, excuse me, our argument doesn't rely on the practical consequences. It really does rely on the plain text, uh, which is the, how every single court to interpret uh, Section 702 has interpreted it up until, you know, a year or two ago. And adopting defendants' uh, interpretation would very much create a circuit split with the Ninth Circuit in Pacific Press and in EOC versus Fremont Christian. You know, Pacific Press was uh, an employee who 
sued her employer in violation of uh, the, the principle of Seventh-day Adventist that you shouldn't have lawsuits between members of the faith. There's no question that she had violated the religious tenets of her employer. Uh, and yet the Ninth Circuit said that Section 702 doesn't provide an exception for that. Um, and of course, the Ninth Circuit also held that principles of church autonomy don't either. Uh, but I think with Section 702, uh, th there really is, you know, no other court of appeals that has adopted uh, defendant's argument. And, and I agree with your honor that Curry Kramer is a case, that's not a case about uh, the scope of Section 702, really. It's a case about how courts can't answer ecclesiastical questions. Curry Kramer never says Section 702 allows religious employers to engage in sex discrimination. Curry Kramer says that one particular sex discrimination claim couldn't proceed because adjudicating that claim would require the court to make an ecclesiastical judgment about the comparative severity of different uh, doctrinal violations. It never says Section 702 allows sex discrimination or race discrimination. And of course, you know, when Congress passed uh, Title VII in 1964 and amended Section 702 in uh, 1972, the idea that there could be schools that would discriminate on the basis of race was not a, a wild foreign concept. It was a reality. And so I, I don't think that we should ascribe to Congress um, uh, a gaping hole in uh, the structure of, of Title VII, especially when it's contrary to the plain text and all the legislative history we have. Um, if there are no further questions on Section 702, I'd be happy to address the constitutional arguments. With respect to the ministerial exception, you know, it is true that the two circuits in very cursory opinions have said that it's not waivable. Um, the 11th Circuit has said that it is waivable. And, and I also think that there's a difference here between waiver and forfeiture. You know, this is a case in which defendants entered into a stipulation uh, that they wouldn't rely on the ministerial exception. In exchange for that stipulation, lots of discovery into what my client's job duties were was taken off the table. We wanted discovery in a 30B6 witness who could talk about what his actual job duties were, and they couldn't provide one. And so instead, they entered into the stipulation. Um, I think that it's a fact of life in litigation, as any criminal defendant attorney or habeas practitioner can tell you that sometimes uh, a party uh, enters into a stipulation unwisely, doesn't raise a defense they could have raised, fails to anticipate a change in the law. And in other contexts, courts hold them to that stipulation or that waiver or that forfeiture. So I, I don't think that the fact that the legal landscape has changed since the stipulation was entered into means that they should be re completely relieved of it. I mean, at a minimum, there should be additional you know, discovery uh, into whether the ministerial exception actually applies here. Uh, but in any event, I, I also think that under current law, as Justice Alito said in his concurrence in Hosanna Tabor, a secular teacher at a religious school doesn't qualify for the ministerial exception. Defendants could have argued for an extension of the law. They could have argued for the ministerial ex exception to be extended to cover all teachers at an organization, right? But they haven't made that argument. And I think what's sort of dangerous about this case from a precedential standpoint is that these are an extremely unusual set of facts that are unlikely to occur in the future. In 2023, uh, attorneys for religious schools have read Our Lady, they've read Hosanna Tabor. They know that if they want to create a position 
that is central to the church's spiritual or, or religious mission, they know how to create a job description that does that. They, they know that if you assign teachers job duties that have a religious function or involve teaching religion, that employee is going to be insulated from Title VII under the ministerial exception. Uh, so we sort of have a time warp problem where we're talking about facts that occurred back in 2014 that it, religious schools can structure their employment positions however they see fit. And I would think it's highly unusual that you would have another case here where the record was so clear that a teacher had no religious duties. Uh, that's what discovery showed over and over and over again. And I think that I understand the what the court has said about on the surface, the idea that a church uh, school uh, can't uh, fire a teacher um, uh, for doing something that conflicts with their religious beliefs um, seems to bump up on uh, ideas about how the ministerial exception has been expanding, how it might expand in the future. But I think it would be a, a big mistake to stretch other areas of the law to pick up the slack and make up the difference, because I think stretching other areas of the law has huge collateral consequences that extends far beyond the context of teachers. So for example, their church autonomy arguments. You know, this court has consistently in Rayburn and in EOC versus Catholic Diocese of Raleigh said that when a job description has a spiritual function, the ministerial exception applies. But when job duties don't have spiritual functions, a church like any other organization has to comply with Title VII as a neutral and generally applicable law. Defendants say that that principle extends beyond ministerial employees, but all the cases they're citing, like Bryce and Moody, aren't cases about a church's autonomy over its internal structure. They're cases about how courts can't answer ecclesiastical questions. And what's doing the job in those cases is not that the employer made a decision for a religious reason. It's that in order to adjudicate the specific claim, the court would have to make a judgment about the truth, falsity, or reasonableness of the religious belief at issue. Um, and I think that the 28J letters that were exchanged about the McMahon versus World Vision case are really clarifying here, because you know, I think McMahon supports our argument that there's no ecclesiastical question problem in our case. You know, we're not asking the court, no one's asking the court to decide that their motives were pretextual. We're saying their motives were irrelevant. And no one's challenging their speech about their religion. We're challenging the actions and firing them. Well, so, yes, Your Honor. Let me ask you a question. You you sort of seem to be limiting the holdings to uh, ecclesiastical uh, uh, aspects, which uh, I'm not sure how that's defined. But it appears from the record that the not only the teaching, but the example and the conduct of teachers uh, teaching Catholic children in the Catholic schools, or not Catholic children, but teaching children in Catholic schools, uh, has a broader aspect than just teaching uh, uh, ecclesiastical, uh, uh, maybe religious doctrine or orthodoxy. Uh, it's, it's a way of life, and the children... Uh, uh, the, the church, uh, Catholic Church takes position that the conduct of the teachers is uh, a very informative. And uh, uh, when, when a teacher uh, sets an example uh, of conduct that's contrary to the Catholic teaching, uh, it, it seems to me that 
how you define ecclesiastical, that might be ecclesiastical or may not be, but it's important to the church. Uh, yes, Your Honor. I, I think that you know, the courts have been unanimous, the Third Circuit, the Fifth Circuit, other courts have all held that the fact that a Catholic school teacher is supposed to be a, a living example is not enough uh, to make their uh, their uh, employment an ecclesiastical concern. Pretty, uh, uh, I think Justice Alito uh, uh, sort of uh, softened the lines of the ministerial exception and uh, in in Our Lady and uh, uh, didn't ultimately define it, but it, it comes down to a little bit of uh, what's important to the act, uh, the indoctrination, the activities of the Catholic education, and of course the documentation in the record. Uh, uh, well supports a notion that this is very important to the Catholic Church as to uh, the teachers uh, who teach the children. Uh, uh, yes, I, sure I don't is. know what lines are. I think uh, I think it's hard to define lines, but uh, yes, Your Honor. I, I you know I, 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 I teachers may be included, and maybe the uh, operator of the lawnmower might not be included. <laughs> but. but uh, yeah. Teacher is the one that's influencing the children, of course. But, Your Honor, so I think the entire purpose of the ministerial exception is to draw that line. Um, and so I think, you know, this court's precedents are very, very clear here that on one side of that line is the ministerial exception, and on the other side of the line is compliance with Title VII. And so it might be that in a future case, the Supreme Court might hold that the ministerial exception applies to these circumstances. I think Justice Alito's concurrence and Hosanna Tabor suggested that it doesn't. But as a panel of this court, um, you know, this court is bound by existing precedent. And I don't think it can depart from its prior precedent in Rayburn, in, um, in Dole versus Shenandoah, uh, based on an anticipation of how the law might change in the future. Remember, in Dole versus Shenandoah. Oh, I'm sorry, Judge Harris. I, I don't judge Niemeyer. Niemeyer yeah. Uh, uh, the question is sort of a, uh, uh, I've understood that the ministerial exception is an aspect of the autonomy doctrine, uh, but that it's uh, the autonomy doctrine could be and is broader uh, than the ministerial exception. You agree with that? I think that it is for other strains of the autonomy doctrine. The autonomy doctrine means many things. Can I ask a question just about the ministerial exception? Um, uh, I, I understand that this teacher was teaching, or that uh, Mr. Billard was teaching only secular subjects, but does, does the record show that he was at least evaluated on whether he taught those subjects sort of consistent with Catholic doctrine? Uh, Your Honor, it, it's a little bit conflicting. Uh, the witnesses said that they did not want him to integrate uh, Catholic teachings into his into his lessons, that they wanted secular uh, teachers to stay away from Catholic teaching issues and leave that to the religious employers. It is true that some of the evaluation forms uh, talked about you know Catholic values, but in a much broader sense. So we, we have very clear testimony uh, about about that. Heard show that his. Um he was evaluated on whether his teaching, I think the language was something like is agreeable to Catholic doctrine. Yeah. So I just, 
do wonder about this line between teaching religious subjects and teaching secular subjects if you have to teach secular subjects in a way that is consistent with Catholic doctrine. That just it, it seems like a fuzzier line than it might otherwise appear. Yes, Your, Your Honor, I, I I guess I would say if this court you know is inclined to to rule based on some form of religious autonomy, I, I would much prefer the court fit it into a ministerial exception uh, bucket, and uh, then the court try to draw some other limiting principle. Uh, I think that having some other shadow principle of employees that are not ministerial employees, but are nevertheless sufficient to trigger church autonomy, I think that, that is a, that's a very hard line to draw. The ministerial exception is an objective test based on the employee's job duties. Um, and so I think the question is, if his job duties do trigger church autonomy, then he should be in the ministerial exception. Uh, but the the actual employment policy here never claims to be limited to teachers. Uh, defendants think that the doctrine of scandal applies to all employees, implies to the janitor, the lunch lady, the IT specialist. And so I think the same church autonomy arguments they're making, that their, their principle is whenever a church employer makes a personnel decision for a religious reason, church autonomy applies. That's an unlimited principle that applies to everyone. So I, I, if the choice is losing under a broader church autonomy or having the court, you know, relieve them of their stipulation and place substitute teachers in the ministerial bucket, I think the ministerial bucket is the much narrower grounds to decide in that a broader church autonomy holding has collateral consequences that will be very hard to anticipate. Now, it seems uh, that the argument that uh, whatever we were to do, uh, if we were to address this issue, it would open the floodgates. Is, uh, it, it seems to me it's belied by the facts of this case, which is, number one, a teacher, number two, whose conduct is contrary to the church doctrine and orthodoxy, uh, and who recognized that when he announced his uh, marriage, that uh, uh, he was going to be in trouble with the church. He understood that. So that's the limitation for this particular case. And uh, 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 going down to the nutritionists and all the other people you're talking about uh, uh, is really not before us. I think what you're pointing out legitimately is where do we draw lines and how do we draw lines? And, and maybe facts draw lines, uh, uh, a case-by-case -case approach, which is, uh, of course, the common law tradition. but. Uh, uh, Anyway, uh, if, if I may, I'm, I've taken you past, unless you have some response. I, uh, yes, sir. I would just like to just briefly respond. You know, I, I think that the line that, that Your Honor articulated is a line for the ministerial exception. That I think that Your Honor has articulated the reasons for saying that someone with the job duties of a teacher is a minister. And that's an objective test. It once you, I, I, my concern is about drawing different lines under some criteria that we haven't yet come up with. I, I, the, the lines that the court mentioned are administrable, but they're administrable because they are the triggers for the ministerial exception. All right, thank you. Uh, oh yeah, go ahead. To sum up, it's your position that Judge Cogburn got it right? Judge Cogburn got it right? That's your position. My, my position is absolutely he got it right, but my position is that we, if, if we, that's right. But to us rule in your favor, we need to rule in your favor on the two statutory defenses and the two constitutional claims. 
correct? Yes, sir. That, that's correct, Your Honor. Um, Intervening uh, authorities don't have any impact on it. The, the which authorities, Your Honor? The, in, the intervening authorities over this period of time, if this case has been lingering around, don't have any impact on what Judge Cogburn ruled. Well, you know, I think Judge Cogburn, Judge Cogburn, you know, he issued his decision and uh, I think it was a, a, a 18 months ago. So I think a lot of those authorities, you know, had already been decided. I don't think that other cases like Fury Fury Creative uh, affect it. Um, but we're defending the decision below and think it should be affirmed. Uh, but if we have to lose, I'd, uh, I'd rather lose on the ministerial exception than on a different issue, uh, because I think... Lose on the issue. Is that right? I'm sorry, Your Honor. Lose on Title Seven. I, I would I would very much not want to lose on Title Seven. That would, that would be something I would want to lose the least on. We've got to read the constitutional question. You don't want to lose on Title Seven. Yes, Your, yes, Your Honor. I think uh, holding on Title Seven is not a narrower holding. What is the... All right. I think we've uh, gone through our red light. Why don't we uh, hear from Mr. Goodrich? Thank you, Your Honor. A couple of quick points, but I'd like to start where Judge Niemeyer just laid out. This is a this is a teacher in a religious school who violated a core church teaching, and everyone agrees that was the reason for the employment action. And my question is, how many court of appeals or Supreme Court cases have ever held that a religious school could not let go of a teacher in that situation? The answer is zero. But my concern about your argument, I totally understand that, is that it's it's like you've given us four blunt instruments to attack a really narrow problem. And I agree with your colleague, it is unlikely to recur because most of these cases are going to be resolved under the ministerial exception. And you have given us, I can't find, of, of all your four arguments, Anything that is sort of narrowly tailored to the facts that you want to keep putting in front of us, because I do understand that many people would find them quite sympathetic and probably be of the view that the Supreme Court is going to think you can't you can't make a Catholic school retain this teacher. But none of the tools you're giving us gets at that problem. They are all much broader than that. The thing that gets at that problem is the ministerial exception. So I feel like I'm being kind of boxed into sort of a fake case here. We have no objection whatsoever. If the court wants to relieve us of the stipulation and rule that Billard was a minister, there's plenty of evidence in the record that would allow you to do that. The fact that he was required to start classes with prayer and did, was required to model the faith, was required to and was evaluated on whether he taught drama in accordance with Catholic teaching. If you want to rule on the ministerial exception, we will gladly embrace that. However, the point to change the fact. Pardon? You want us to change the facts of the case? No, Your Honor. I'm saying on the undisputed facts on this record, you could reach that conclusion if you desire. My point about the teacher in the religious school, that no court has ever done what the plaintiff is asking you to do, is that there are multiple areas of the law that converge to, to say that the church is protected here. Certainly, the ministerial exception is one of those, and that is the most common way that courts have typically handled these issues. But there's no need or constitutional warrant to try to stretch the ministerial exception to cover every one of these situations that arises when there are multiple doctrines that cover this, and it should be no surprise that there are. And as to whether those doctrines are blunt or narrow, I'd love to briefly speak to each one. 
Title VII is the ministerial section has uh, an object. In other words, the basically what's issue at issue is the orthodoxy of the church and its insistence that teacher's conduct conform to that orthodoxy. And uh, 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 your uh, reluctance to em embrace the ministerial exception is really unfortunate, especially in view of uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Our Lady. Uh, uh, it's, it's the most focused doctrine that's been advanced, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we should read 703 uh, uh, activities, church activities. Uh, it ha has to be uh, construed but uh, uh, in Title VII, but uh, uh, we, we don't have a silver bullet. <laughs> you have five silver bullets, basically, and we have no objection to the ministerial exception. But to the narrowness of the other of the other pieces, the Title VII religious exemption in the vast majority of cases, it's and not in Title VII what religious exemption. The Title VII exemption isn't going to apply in the vast majority of cases. Take Palmer for an example. If you dismiss a teacher because she's not up on technology, if you dismiss a teacher because you just don't like the personality or budgetary reasons, we're making budget cuts. The religious exemption doesn't even come into play, and that's the vast majority of employment decisions that are made. Second, if you do assert that we made this employment decision based on the employee's religious belief, observance, or practice, that still has to be the genuine reason. If that's a pretext, if that's a sham, if it's made up, the religious exemption doesn't apply. So, the all the cases that say, are you? So, you would disagree with all the cases that say no. If a religious school asserts a religious reason. And it would require like an intrusive inquiry to figure out whether that reason is pretextual or not. Under 702, we have to stand back. Those some, cases are wrong? No, our position is some pretext inquiries are allowed and some are not. And I'd, I'd be happy to explain no. which ones. Okay. So, All right. I, unless you have anything further to wind up, you are through the red light. And, uh, uh, thank you. I would just note that the Supreme Court in Obergefell anticipated this sort of case and promised that religious organizations would continue to receive legal protection as they teach their belief in traditional marriage. This case falls squarely within the promise of Obergefell, falls squarely within the text of Title VII's religious exemption and the First Amendment. So we ask that you reverse. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Uh, we'll uh, come down uh, and greet counsel and then uh, proceed on the na next case. Uh, Mr. Uh, Block, we can't shake hands with you uh, in, uh, in in reality, but it's our tradition, and we've resumed it. Uh, uh, I'm sorry about your physical condition. I hope you recover quickly, but uh, thanks for your argument, and uh, we'll greet you uh, in this manner from the from the bench. Thank you.